I thought we would look at balloons this week. After all, they've been in the news a lot recently, with the Chinese accused of flying them over America for the purposes of espionage. Well, it might be comforting to know that this type of thing isn't new. Indeed, the Americans were accused of doing the very same thing to the Soviets during the Cold War. Well, perhaps comforting isn't the right word, but is it comforting to see Cold War incidents pop up again? If we are back in the Cold War, at least it means that we haven't gone forward into a nuclear one. A Cold War is preferable to a hot one. At least it's cold from where I am, in nice, safe Britain. Not so cold in Ukraine, of course. So does the recent spate of balloon incidents just give us another clue that the Cold War is back? Or does it suggest that the Cold War never ended? It just went through a tremendous lull, a a lovely long detente after 1991. But one thing is obvious, whether the Cold War abruptly ended, quietly continued, or has now resumed, dodgy balloon incidents have always been with us. And today we'll look at how they've been used in nuclear tests, in nuclear protests, and in nuclear spying. So let's start with the spying, the thing which has been happening recently, China being accused of spying on the US with high-altitude balloons. Well, the exact same thing happened in, to take one example, the late 1950s. The incident we're going to look at here happened in 1958, which was, of course, one of the scary peaks of the Cold War. It was in November of that difficult year that we had another Berlin crisis, when prickly wee Khrushchev demanded that the West leave Berlin. Into Berlin, Russia has played the ace card of her Cold War diplomacy. She tells the people of the Western sector that the Soviet government will soon hand over control of East Berlin to the East German government. Berliners of the West are so far unperturbed. They have come through the total defeat of Hitler and many crises since then. They're confident they'll weather this one. Russia's apparent object is to compel the Western allies to recognise East Germany. The Russians had been getting mighty irritated in Berlin because, at that point, of course, 1958, there was no Berlin Wall yet. So you could freely travel from east to west. East Berliners could pop across to West Berlin for the day and see, well, (laughs) plenty, variety, choice, better food, better cars, better clothes, better health, freedom. West Berlin was right there, a big flashing beacon advertising capitalism and tempting East Germans to cross. And cross they did. It was estimated that by the end of 1956, over a million East Germans had left. And East Germany was losing some of its best people. It was a classic brain drain. And not only were they losing many of their best and brightest, but it was an embarrassment to the socialist project. After all, if the DDR is so great, why does everyone want to bounce? So in November of 1958, Khrushchev demanded that the three Western powers withdraw from the city. 
And it was against this difficult backdrop that the spy balloon incident occurred. In October of that year, the Soviet Union issued a formal note to the American government demanding that they stop sending balloons over our territory. And two days before that note was issued, the Soviets had summoned the media to a press conference where, according to the New York Times, they displayed, quote, a plastic balloon and equipment. It said the United States had sent them over the Soviet Union to locate, by aerial photography, targets for American nuclear missiles in the event of a conflict. Seen in Moscow, some of the weather balloons and equipment which were released by the American army and landed in the Soviet Union. These pictures, taken under difficult conditions in Molotov's residence, are enlargements of a smaller film. The equipment includes radio transmitters, receivers and cameras. The Americans state that the balloons were used only for meteorological purposes. The Russians, however, claim that the cameras could be used to film Soviet territories. So the Soviets produced what they claimed was this huge big spy balloon at the news conference, and it was described as a heap of colourless material said to be a section of a balloon and an orange and white striped parachute which were draped across a huge panel. Mounted and suspended in front of it were packages and equipment identified as ultra-shortwave radio sets, a camera and a photo container for large stocks of film. So this uh, paraphernalia was all paraded and explained for the cameras by a Colonel Tarantsov. So the US was invading Soviet airspace to check out where they could drop their nukes if things went hot. If that wasn't bad enough, the Soviets also threw in, well, and these balloons are also a menace to aeroplanes. And that's exactly what we've had recently with America accusing China of the same. Using it to spy and endangering civilian aircraft. And the US back in the 50s gave the same response that the Chinese have. Oh no, 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 this balloon, nothing to do with spying. It's just there for scientific research, um, weather. It's just up there gathering information. Nothing scary. But yes, I strangely find comfort in that, in the fact that the same patterns are repeating. And perhaps that doesn't make sense, because at the time, of course, the late 50s, there was the threat of nuclear war. So why on earth would it be comforting to find the same behaviour now? Why would it be comforting to think that the Cold War is back? Is it because the Cold War remained cold? At the time, of course, we didn't know it was going to remain cold. We probably imagined it at times as an inevitable progression towards a hot war, a nuclear conflict. It's only with hindsight that we know it was cold and remained cold. So if the Cold War has indeed revived, who's to say it will remain following the same pattern and reaching the same outcome? So when I say I find comfort in it, maybe I don't mean comfort, maybe I just mean silly, childish nostalgia or sentimentality. Oh, the old days are back again. Maybe that's what I'm seeking comfort in. But maybe when things are as uncertain as they are today, you take comfort where you can find it. Now, in that same anxious period, this time 1957, another use was found for balloons. You needn't be content with 
floating them across enemy territory to get a good look at their military installations and possible target areas. You can also strap a nuclear bomb to a balloon out in the Nevada desert for the purposes of nuclear testing. Yes, it was in 1957 that this new method of nuclear testing was first used, dangling the thing from a balloon. Until then, the usual method of testing was to place the bomb, or the device, atop a steel tower out in the desert. Or you could test them at sea, or underwater. The deepest underwater nuclear test was Wigwam in 1955, off the coast of California. The aim of Wigwam was to see how submarines would fare against an underwater nuke. So the device was submerged 2,000 feet underwater. But today we are looking at balloons at atmospheric tests. And so the usual method was to hoist the thing up onto a specially built tower. The problem with towers was that they were expensive to build. For a test at 500 feet, your tower would require 250 tonnes of steel, plus all the construction time and labour. There was also the question of fallouts. We all know, of course, that debris on the ground will be sucked up into the mushroom cloud, later to descend as fallout. Well, you've just added 250 tonnes of pulverised steel to your mushroom cloud. You've just fed the monster there. So wouldn't it be cheaper and safer if we could dispense with the big clunky steel towers and just gently dangle the thing from a balloon? The idea with balloon testing was less steel, less expense, less debris, less fallout. And you also had more flexibility about the bomb's altitude. Want it to go higher or lower? Fine, you can control that with the balloon's cables and tethers. But the flexibility regarding the bomb's detonation height produced a new problem. With the fixed height of a steel tower, all the necessary measurements had been done. The scientists could work out in advance what the altitude of the burst would mean for blast radius, fallout, etc. They could also ensure that the bomb's flash wasn't going to be so high that it was going to startle or blind any drivers out on desert roads. But with variable altitudes, they had to check. If we raise this thing higher, can it be seen by farmers out on that road, or this road, or that one over there? So they would, in advance of the balloon tests, send up bright magnesium flares so they could check which highways were in sight of the flash. And that told them which roads they would have to close in advance of the test. And of course, all the cables which were tethering the balloon to the ground, well, let's emphasise those cables because they were hugely important. We might talk of the bomb being lifted into the air by a balloon, sure, but it wasn't free, of course, to just float off. It was very, very carefully tethered to the ground because the last thing, really the last thing you would want, is this balloon with its bomb floating free and (laughs) bobbing across America. So it was very carefully secured to the ground. And just in case it still managed to get loose, 
The balloon was also specially constructed so that if, God forbid, it did get loose and start rising higher and floating away, it was designed so that it would automatically deflate on reaching a certain altitude, any unauthorised altitude. So the elevated pressure would cause it to split its seams and drop back harmlessly, we hope, to Earth. And of course, when we talk about balloons and nuclear testing, um, we, it's not a, a squeaky, shiny red balloon we might find at a children's party, but a big, ugly, heavy-duty industrial thing. The University of Nevada tells us that the balloons used were big nylon shrouds, and inside the shroud was a polythene liner filled with helium. Now, constructing the thing and getting the thing aloft was tough and sweaty work because you're out there in the Nevada desert working with huge lengths of nylon and polythene and if you were inside the thing preparing it, the temperatures in the summer could reach 130 degrees. One of the workers recalled that being inside the nylon was like being in a car out in the desert and the nylon of course wouldn't let any air in. But we're talking about the 50s here, so it was mostly just blokes were working out in the desert. And so they said that they were able to just strip down to their shorts and work half-naked and sweating and frequently come out from under the sweating nylon for huge big gulps of water. Added to those strange working conditions, we must remember they were also dealing with helium. And that could have unexpected results. Quote, you had to be very careful, and they used to laugh about that, filling the balloons with helium. If you get too much helium, then you start talking funny. It changes your vocal cords. But you can also die, because you don't even know it. So these guys were out in the desert, sweating and squeaking beside a big, fat, sandy nuke. How was your day at work, dear? But just as we're about to have a giggle about how absurd nuclear testing can be with its sweaty balloons and its squeaky workers, we are reminded, of course, that we are dealing with horror. And so this first balloon test, as with all tests, had a specific purpose. And this one had the purpose of measuring the effect of the flash on eyes. And of course, they're not going to subject it to unprotected human eyes. It was used on rabbits. So just a reminder there of what we're dealing with. We are dealing with something horrible. So the first balloon tests were introduced in the plumb bob tests in June 1957. And the first balloon test was started, it was a very gentle one. After all, they were using a new method, so they didn't want to hoist a big whopping megaton monster up into the air. Instead, the very first balloon test had a yield of 1/20th of the Hiroshima bomb. So they started with a with a little guy. The New York Times archive tells me that this first balloon test, which the media were invited to watch, produced only a tiny mushroom cloud, a little nuclear puff, and it rose to a height of only 1 mile. 1 mile seems a lot of course, but consider that Tsar Bomba, at the other end of the scale, was said to have risen 40 miles high. So our mushroom cloud from the first balloon test 
only went up one mile and it had totally dissipated within four hours. Here's a quote from the newspaper. To observers on Mount Charleston, 50 miles away, the detonation made a flash of light inexplicably shaped like an exclamation mark that lasted for less than a second. The paper goes on to say, Test personnel 15 miles from the explosion point, it was officially reported, heard only a muffled report, in contrast to the usual thunderous roar of atomic blasts. So the authorities might have been quite pleased with themselves. They've delivered a new way of doing nuclear tests, which offers far more flexibility, is much cheaper and produces less fallout. But that's not to say that the balloon tests were trouble-free. There was one very scary incident, a near-miss again in 1957. A balloon test was being prepared. The balloon had been hoisted up into the air, with, of course, the nuclear bomb dangling from it. Everything was ready to go when one of the cables tethering it to the earth popped. So the workers were all instantly scrutinising the thing, checking the cameras, what's going on here, what's happened, who's popped. And then one guy looking through a camera goes, look, there's a face. I'm quoting here from the University of Nevada's oral history project. Some airman from the Indian Springs Air Base had gone in a jeep at the bottom end of the range and come over in the back side into the test site. It had all been swept before the shot, no one there. And he'd come there and saw the balloon and stared up at it and didn't know it was an active shot. If the cable hadn't have broken, never would have seen him. Never would have found them. The balloon tests also attracted anti-nuclear protesters. These protesters would often turn up at the test site and a local sheriff recalled that the test site, of course, was just too big to fence off. So they would often get in and (laughs) wander about. The sheriff says we would always try and clear them out, of course, but some would get through. One uh, protest group who found their way onto the test site remembered, quote, the ground was shaking and the rocks were moving. And one time, Greenpeace used a hot air balloon of their own to cross into the test site. And one of our sheriffs remembers, quote, so the day of the demonstration, they got up into the air. I don't think they had a lot of experience with it. And they had the basket and they were up in the air And what they wanted to do, I think, was they could say they'd come into the test site, but they didn't trespass at the castle guard, which is true, they came through the air. Well, they come swooping down over the castle guards like this, and then I guess they turned off the fire too soon. So it came down, well, the basket hit the top of the gully, the basket went like that and unloaded everybody. It thumped them right on the desert. That was a plus for us. No one got hurt. But that was our dealing with Greenpeace, that big old balloon. I can still see that hot air balloon. (laughs) So if you're going to protest against nuclear testing, don't use a balloon of your own unless you're highly experienced at handling the thing. 
because it might just tip you out onto the desert floor. Another way of using balloons as a nuclear protest, probably a safer way, happened in 1983, in October of that year, at Notre Dame University in Indiana. Now, the university's president at the time was a strong opponent of nuclear weapons, and uh, a religious man, of course, and he led a crowd of 59,000 people at the university's football stadium in a prayer for peace before one of the games began. They then released 500 balloons. The idea was that these balloons would, of course, take off into the air above the stadium and then drift out over Indiana. And they would be found in a day or two by locals. And if you found one of these balloons, if it descended and bumped around in your back garden or on the road or whatever, and you found it, it meant or it symbolised that you were within the fallout range if a bomb detonated at the university's football stadium. When the balloons were released, the stadium announcer said, quote, This afternoon, Notre Dame joins communities throughout the state of Indiana, which last week released 1,000 balloons, signifying concern over the nuclear hair trigger which threatens us all. Each balloon released from the stadium has a tag indicating that if a warhead had detonated over Notre Dame today, the finder would be within range of the fallout. The local paper, the South Bend Tribute, recorded that as of November 22nd, 17 of the 500 balloons had been found by locals and returned to the university. Some of them had drifted as far as 30 miles out into Marshall County. One of them was found by Casey Fugel, a second grader who found it in the playground at Indian Meadows School. A toddler, Zachary Sheets, found one in the town of North Manchester. Now, there's something very poignant about that, of course, about toddlers or second graders, little Casey and little Zachary, finding these balloons in playgrounds or in gardens. And of course, um, a balloon, an ordinary balloon, to these wee kids will probably mean fun and innocence. It's something to play with. It's a prize, it's a reward, it's a toy. And yet when little Zachary, the toddler, picks one up, he's picking up something which symbolises the fact that he, if the bomb had dropped at Notre Dame, would quite soon die of radiation sickness. So it's awful to think that the shiny balloon symbolises a slow, gruesome death. Well, Zachary Sheets, if you're out there and you remember finding that balloon in Indiana, please do get in touch. It's just so sad to picture him clutching that balloon, which of course had a label attached to it, as we know, which would have told the finder, this means you will be dying of radiation sickness if it happens, but we can assume poor little Zachary, as a toddler, wouldn't have been able to understand it. He would just have clutched the balloon and thought, hey, I found a balloon. Poor little guy. Now, I know the podcast has been quiet over the past couple of weeks, and I apologise for that, of course. I have been um, I have been very busy preparing for the book's publication. We are now 27 days away from publication. And remember, you can pre-order it, either as hardback, uh, ebook, or audiobook. It's called Attack Warning Red, 
How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War By me, Julie McDowell 27 days to go And I'd be very grateful if you would consider pre-ordering it And thank you to everyone who already has done So, sorry for the podcast being a bit erratic recently I'm just not very good at multitasking But I hope you've enjoyed this episode And I thank you for listening <laughs>